With the departure into the study of modernist philosophy as a psychotoxin, hostile to ethnic identity and masculine solidarity, Rosenberg is creeping up the steps to the final crime scene of World War I that his quest is calibrated to somehow reverse. He is the coroner invited by his conscience and his own well-tempered sword of reason to conduct the inquest concerning the death of Western civilization who somehow convinces himself that he can reanimate the corpse once he has ascertained the cause of death. Rarely has a more heroic work of literature been attempted than the myth of the 20th century, making this effort as quintessentially Aryan and about as likely to succeed as Leonidas and his 300 at the Hot Gates or the Stand of Roland against the Saracens. James Lafond, writing nearly a century after Rosenberg, in a civilizational point that is in many ways heading into a repeat of the cataclysm that consumed the Western world, and in particular Weimar Germany by the 1930s. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. The myth is the myth of the blood, which, under the sign of the swastika, released the world revolution. It is the awakening of the soul of the race, which, after a period of long slumber, victoriously put an end to racial chaos. <clears throat> Welcome to the program. I'm Nick. I'm joined by uh, Hans and Adam, as well as um, my favorite returning guest, James LaFond. The opening that I had just read is from the dust jacket of the book, The Myth of the 20th Century by Alfred Rosenberg. However, the quote itself, interestingly enough, I think is apocryphally attributed to him since it does not appear in the text itself. And my suspicion is that it was added by a publisher at the time. Uh, I don't know. Sounded good. And uh, maybe it would help the sales of the book, which, by the way, did actually very well. Uh, sold at least a million copies, probably more. And this will be the subject of today's conversation. However, before we get to that, uh, there's a few other points we have to get out of the way. Uh, someone who had donated to the Patreon was asking about uh, Adam's book and whether he could get a copy. Uh, Adam, why don't you say what, uh, where to email to receive to receive that copy? Yeah, first of all, sorry for any miscommunication. Uh, we're uh, we're doing this part time, and so we don't always have time to check. But uh, please email uh, myth twenty c at tunanota dot com. That's m y t h twenty c at tunanota dot com, and I'd be happy to send you a free copy if you have donated. Uh, that goes for anybody. And James, before we get 
started with today's subject, is there anything that you would like to plug or announce or anything that you'd like to say? I've been in, actually the site went up yesterday. There's a young fellow named Richard Barrett who started a website called Pulp Renaissance. And uh, I'm going to be uh, uh, putting a good deal of my fiction there. Anybody that's interested in different genres of adventure fiction. Uh, uh, it's just Pulp, Pulp Renaissance. It's a... Uh, it's a WordPress site that he just put up, and he's got a lot of content to go with it. I've written some things for it. I gave him the book that I just finished to post up on there. So hopefully uh, he'll end up being that uh, Farnsworth Wright of uh, 2020s. So well, uh, I wish him well, and that's where you'll be able to find a decent amount of my fiction. In the future. <clears throat> well, we are gathered here, boys, today. To commit war crimes. And this is, in fact, a war crime, uh, considering that the author of this book, Alfred Rosenberg, was hanged by the victors of the European War in 1945 for the crime of writing this book. Hopefully, our humble podcast hosts here do not share the same fate as Alfred Rosenberg, but who knows in the years to come. Really, anything's possible when you're dealing with these animals and their slavish and insane devotion to the human rights money power cult. So, James, you wrote a, I guess you would call it a review. Um, How would you describe what you wrote? Uh, I guess it's a combination of a review, uh, summation, and critique of the book. Uh, I think I did it in 11 parts. It covered 64 pages. And, um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I did a half decent job. The, uh, I received this book from a, uh, a listener and a reader and he put a note in it and he said, the guy that wrote this thing got killed uh, for it. So be careful. And the guy I was staying with, uh, uh, quickly decided to teach me how to play dominoes. So I'd have some kind of, uh, I would be conversant in a recreational activity from when I got sent to federal prison. After he saw I was reviewing this in his house. Well, the title of it is Blue-Eyed Daughter of Zeus. Why don't you explain what what you meant by this? Well, that's a quote from Rosenberg from his book. And it's in the uh, it's in the earlier portion. And uh, I recall, I think he was obliquely referring to the idea of Europa uh, as the blue-eyed daughter of Zeus. Uh, the idea that... Uh, the uh, the Aryan uh, conquerors of Europe, the the sky god cults. Uh, it was it was about their legacy and about how it had continued to struggle over the ages against uh, assimilation from the people uh, that they conquered. Uh, they conquered down to the Mediterranean Sea, and then their immediately in contact with these uh, ancient decadent civilizations with, uh, I like he calls it, hither Asiatic influences. And, uh, and he points out the Phoenicians were pretty corrosive and that there was already the Etruscans represented a Phoenician cult uh, in Italy that was already insinuating uh, 
you know, like child sacrifice uh, ideas into uh, into the Aryan uh, spiritual experience. So uh, it was every chat, uh, every one of the eleven uh, bits I did on his book. I just tried to pick out something, uh, a phrase of his that kind of caught the spirit of it, and uh, I decided on that one didn't make it for a title of any of the sections, but it's the one I liked the most. So I decided to use it for a title for the whole report, which will be part of my next Aryan history book uh, that I'm wrapping up, Beasts of uh, Arias. So uh, I was really impressed with it. I, I really liked the book. It was an easy read for me. It was a, uh, a history of European metaphysics and its interaction with, uh, with, neighboring uh, metaphysical traditions. And the book it reminded me of the most is Jason Reza Giorgiani's Prometheus and Atlas and its uh, chronological structure and its theme, although uh, uh, Giorgiani's direction is more what we would call the paranormal. Uh, I actually, it's funny you say that. When I read Giorgiani's book, I, I thought it resembled Alfred Rosenberg's book in, in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that the spirit of it is very much in line, I think, with with Rosenberg. Now, yeah. I'd like to actually, I'd like to read the opening, so because I, I want to get right into the the meat and potatoes as to what it was that Rosenberg was doing. And I, I believe in in your review, you described it as uh, Aryan theology or something to that effect. I think that if if those were I your probably words. used, I probably used that at some point. I'm sure he didn't. Uh, but he came close to it. Mm, yes. Well, I'm going to read the opening of the book just to to set the stage, because I, I know for a fact that very few people have read this book. I think in addition to the usual suspects who don't want you reading this book, I think that there's a lot of people you'll find, um, for lack of a better term, on the right who probably don't want you reading this book either. Um, I'll leave that there. <laughs> oh, amen. Definitely. <laughs> so let's start with it. All present day struggles for power are outward effects of an inward collapse. All state systems of 1914 have already collapsed, even if in part they still formally exist. Collapsed also have social, church, and ideological creeds and values. No highest principle, no supreme idea governs undisputed the life of Volks. Group struggles against group, party against party, national values against international dogmas, rigid imperialism against spreading pacifism, finance with its golden meshes swallows states and Volk, economy becomes nomadic, life is uprooted. The Great War as the beginning of a world revolution in all domains, has revealed the tragic fact that although millions sacrificed their lives, the sacrifice was to the advantage of forces other than those for which the armies were ready to die. The dead of the war were victims of a catastrophic epoch that has lost all its values, but at the same time, and this is something which begins to be grasped in Germany today, even if so far by few, the martyrs of a new dawn, of a new faith, the blood which died begins to live. In its mystical sign, the cells of the German folkish soul renew themselves. Past and present suddenly appear in a new light, and for the future, there results a new mission. 
history and the task of the future no longer signify the struggle of class against class or the conflict between one church dogma and another, but the settlement between blood and blood, race and race, Volk and Volk, and that means the struggle of spiritual values against each other. <clears throat> now, from the outset, uh, I think that one of the probably most likely misunderstandings or assumptions about the book is that it's some kind of uh, work of party polemics, and that's really not the case. It's much more of a, um, as you said, or maybe did not say, I can't remember. Uh, it's almost a work of uh, Aryan theology. It goes very far back in time. And another another analogy that I know, in fact, you did use is that he was like some kind of mortician trying to solve the cause of the death of our civilization. Right. And and use those lessons to resurrect it. Uh, the, the first two thirds of the book is just about the history of uh, uh, theology amongst the Indo-Europeans and their neighbors and philosophy and how certain philosophy philosophical uh, paths would uh, would erode. Sometimes they would highlight, sometimes they would erode, but they would have different effects on these. So he charts the plunge from uh, from theology and the honor cult down uh, all the way to uh, the merchant takeover, uh, the, uh, the gross materialistic uh, philosophy of the greater good. Yes. And I think if I had to sum up the spirit of, of Rosenberg's writing as succinctly as possible, it would be that it's at its very core, it is anti-dogmatic and not always just this case of the specific dogmas, uh, that come, you know, from Asia that have ensnared the mind of Aryans the world over and the various forms of black magic and mystical, you know, Etruscan demon cults, essentially. But that he places squarely the spiritual center of Aryan man as coming from inside, from, from the, the spirit itself coming, coming, coming from within, a natural longing for an expression of of two things in particular he will identify, which is namely honor and freedom and freedom that extends to freedom of conscience. Now in the early section of the book, Rosenberg contrasts this with the values of uh, basically love or put another way, pity. Would you like to comment on this, James? I believe he has two different chapters titled love and honor in different sections of the book. He breaks it up into different books. And his, uh, I would, he, he's, he's contrasting these two values and it's clear that uh, the honor is the superior value because it's the, it's the uncorruptible internal discipline that your, uh, your moral operating system in the chaotic world where the love impulse is going to drag you into uh doing things that are going to contradict uh, your honor system and 
have all kinds of bad effects. Uh, essentially, uh, you could distill it into letting women vote means that you're always going to be able to get the results you want by scaring people. Well, okay. the, the former is faithfulness to oneself and to you know, one's personality, as he would say, whereas the other is submission to a creed, to a dogma that is external to you. He does the best job in singling this out when he goes after St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuit order, who uh, one of his many things, uh, one of his one line in his credo was, if we see something that appears to be white, yet the church has declared this black, then we call it black. <laughs> OK, which is where you know the doctrine of love is going to take you if um, if that's your guiding principle. So he's uh, he's he's working with the tension of opposites that Evola talked a lot about in his metaphysics war and those essays. Well, you provide a, a quote uh, <clears throat> that you thought you were impressed by. Uh, that the churches of all denominations declared as the faith, so the man. This was necessary for every church and promised success since the, since in this way, the value of a man was made dependent on its course of principles and men were thus spiritually enchained to the chosen church organization. On the other hand, the Northern European creed, whether consciously or unconsciously has always been as the man. So his beliefs, why did that stand out to you? Well, there were about 200 quotes that really stood out to me in here. I, I had up to seven different quotes singled out for some of these chapters to list them. So uh, the, the man did an excellent job of uh, taking a compound sentence and uh, putting a lot of principle reflection into it. So that one, th that quote is really at the core of the whole battle. Once you... Uh, once the Indo-Europeans, the Aryans, once they conquered uh, Europe 4,000 years ago, uh, it doesn't seem like many of the indigenous men survived, but they took the women to wife. And once your father has decided uh, to marry your mother and have you, it's going to be pretty difficult to pretty much hate everything or disrespect everything that comes with your mother's cultural baggage. So right there, that's the crux. You have you have, and this this happens most uh, invaders, uh, like the Mongols, when they would conquer a civilization. When in three generations they were just done, they were totally assimilated. The Aryans, it took thousands of years for them to be corrupted by the civilizations they conquered. So they are uh, much like a the King Call novels and some of the uh, stories and some of the Conan stories that Robert E. Howard wrote would be about this barbarian man with an honor code trying to rule uh, judiciously over this uh, civilization that had many parts of it that were ancient and were corrupt before the current people, the current strain of rulers were even in charge or possibly even in existence. So there's, there's that constant battle. This is really the theme of this whole book. So I, that was one of the quotes that just had to go into the summation of it. 
because you could probably bottle 70 pages of his work in that. There's uh, a, a specific thing. At the same time, I read this the first time and I took my notes. Then I worked on another project for Plantation America, which was about child trafficking in Plantation America, which is largely what that was, and down to today. And uh, I was doing that after my first go at this book. And there's this one uh, section that I didn't mark off for this review, but I'm using it for the other project. And it was about the, uh, uh, the Semitic, Punic, uh, Phoenician, Etruscan, uh, essentially your Middle Eastern practice of child sacrifice. And remember, the Carthaginians were known to do this. Uh, they were North African enemies of the Romans, but that was a colony of Phoenicia. I believe they came from Tyree. Uh, the murdered boy now becomes a little goat. Thunder personified is a metamorphosis of the son gained by violation. The perfected little goat. Uh, that's just the beginning of uh, one of his exposés on the cruelty that was uh, at the heart and it was in the guts of numerous of these uh, uh, agrarian settled religions that were conquered uh, by the Aryan war bands. As far as I'm going to term an Aryan probably meant war bands. So this is what the, the, the women that you married after you slaughtered your men 4,000 years ago, they have these cults. These cults are in place and there is a residual effect. They can become the wife of the sky god and be subservient, but still there's going to be an effect there. So really, uh, Rosenberg's exploration through this whole book, he's constantly trying to define and analyze this battle between the honor uh, sky god cults and uh, the agrarian cults of the settled civilizations that the Aryan barbarians conquered. And, and hence the Indo-European civilizations are hybridized from the beginning, and there's this constant struggle. Yeah, it, when you consider when it was written, and partially why it was written, I think that it's, uh, it's trying to relay to Germans in particular at the time, and Europeans more broadly, I suppose, in you know, the early 30s, um, that this struggle that they are embarking upon and that they've begun to notice at great length is um, sort of all-encompassing this struggle against, you know, what they kind of saw as the the uh, the growing Jewish power, especially in Germany and Weimar, um, that this went back a ways. And he does take elements of uh, less uh, lesser and under-discussed elements of history or narratives of history that um, even in his time were kind of agreed to be um, nearly verboten. I mean, the the subject of Carthaginian child sacrifice, um, Moloch worship, the whole lot of it, um, even by the early 20th century had kind of um, been forbidden as a talking point within academia. Uh, it was regarded as black propaganda that the Romans and the Greeks were engaging in to justify uh, the 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 wars against Carthage, but as time went on, 
even in his time, it was it was well known secretly that this was obviously the case that there, there you know the Punic Wars were really uh, far more complex than Roman expansion. It had to do with uh, a larger, grander struggle for who was going to put down the uh, the death cult that was trying to run the Mediterranean. And it also, I think, by the by now, you know, these days we know for a fact that it wasn't just black propaganda, that Carthage, in particular, was engaged in um, pretty horrific cult behavior, and their their greatest friends and allies were also um, frequent practitioners of pretty horrible cult behavior. You know, the the Gaulish Celts of Central Europe were amongst some of the most disgusting people in the ancient world. I mean, they were truly just abominable, especially the further deeper into Gaul you got. And many of the Celtiberians were not exactly uh, civilized either. So you had this uh, this collection of, you know, losers and child sacrificers that were sort of being united by this strange... Levantine cult that um, had survived the attack of Alexander the Great and was now, you know, sort of haunting the Mediterranean and interfering in everyone's lives. Um, and sort of the the Roman Greek effort to really rid the Mediterranean of this this kind of ancient problem. Uh, you know, Rosenberg ties it into. Uh, a a larger um, I guess genetic history of of the Dorian invasion of Greece, and he you know this this is a this is a thing that he does throughout the book, and and it's actually fairly interesting from both a historical and storytelling perspective is that he'll start at a point and he'll say, but we now we need to wind our way back, and then we'll wind our way forward from a storytelling perspective back to that point. So there's a lot of sort of V-shaped storytelling, and it ingratiates you into the background of a story, then slowly works you back up to the point and then tells the story, um, which is far more interesting than just sort of a collection of events from start to finish. And yeah, has, it has like real philosophical points. And so he, he has this quote where he says, um, uh, most beautifully of all was the dream of Nordic man made, hella, made, made manifest in Hellas, which, is, which would be the Greek peninsula, the Peloponnese. Uh, wave upon wave came from the Danube Valley and overlaid the earlier population of mixed Aryan and non-Aryan immigrants, bringing fresh creative power. The ancient Mycenaean culture of the Achaeans was predominantly Nordic in character. Next, Dorian tribes stormed anew the citadels of the racially alien Aborigines, subjugating them and overthrowing the dominion of the legendary Phoenician Semitic king Minos. Until then, he had been the master of all the area, which was known to be known in later times as Hellas. As sturdy masters and warriors, the Hellenic tribes supplanted the decaying civilization of the Levantine traders, and with the labor of the subjugated races, constructed an incomparable creative culture. And this is this is kind of an interesting point that he's trying to make, and he's trying to make this point that um, that perhaps history comes and goes in these cycles and waves. And these conflicts that we're in now, so in the conflict of the 1930s, 
is in fact a continuation of a conflict that is at the very least 3,000 years old. And it goes back to the first initial encounters between um, the late descendants of um, the Yamnaya culture on the steppe as they moved deeper and deeper into Europe. And the people who were there before, these sort of, um, we would call them uh, EFs or early European farmers, these sort of Levantine chieftains that had um, tormented much of mainland Europe and tormented the the hunter-gatherers that came before, um, they were sort of thrown out after the end of the Bronze Age. And they were permanently removed and in Rosenberg's mind, this is one of these critical inflection points where this ancient struggle goes back to. And we've been caught in this cycle of some kind of secret cult warfare for thousands of years. There's a there's a good single line, which is only where the insane terrors of witchcraft did not hold sway could great centers of European culture flourish. He's and he makes the same point with the Etruscans, too, that the Etruscans were some kind of Eastern witchcraft cult that had somehow found its way into the Italian mainland. And they were slowly but surely sort of bled out by, you know, continued Roman. They originally ruled over the Roman area. Yeah. They were yeah. for a while. They were the strongest power. So that all through first the Hellenic world and and with the pre-Roman Italy, there was a lot of influence it's re from Phoenicia that is uh, reflected in the Aeneid with the exile of uh, Dido, uh, the Phoenician princess is fleeing her cruel father-in-law and found Carthage. The, uh, the uh, linear A and linear B that was earlier used in Hellas uh, gave way to Phoenician influence scripts. So these people are actually providing you with an alphabet. So it's going to be pretty easy for their, uh, their culture to find currency. Uh, the Phoenicians monopolized uh, the trade in purple dye, which was uh, the color of kings, uh, judges and sacred contests and priests and everything. So people wanted that. So you had this merchant network that dealt in one of the 37 languages uh, uh, alphabets. There was 37 different alphabets competing. Uh, in the Mediterranean world. And they also had trade bases all over the Mediterranean, all the way up to Cornwall near Devonshire and uh, in Southern England. And they're control. So they're controlling uh, tin, which controls bronze, which is the metal of the time. And then they also have the dye and the dye was very important to people. So one of the central themes here and it's i think very correct namely that unique peoples have their own in their blood they have their own spiritual expression their own there are values that belong to them specifically and along with that are their gods and through the processes of conquest migration assimilation you find a situation where you, people are going to be subjected to alien creeds, and the way that that is held together is through the basically the, the violent in, enforcement of dogma. Now, he's also going to be talking 
quite a bit about the question of miscegenation and the corruption and pollution of the blood. Because one theme that pops up constantly is the idea that if the blood is still there, if the, if the, if the blood remains pure, those spiritual values that belong to a given people, in this case, the Aryan people, will find ways to bubble up and surface and express themselves, even if the forms of their religious system are alien. And he makes this point about Dante, who he viewed as having uh, imbibed this Etruscan vision of hell, but saw that even, even with that picture that he paints, that quintessentially Aryan virtues come through even in Dante. Yeah, he ma- he makes a lot of interesting points throughout as well. That um, just from a historiographical, historiographical, sorry, perspective, uh, most of the great works or the great culture that you'll see throughout Europe, um, unknowingly or knowingly, uh, has uh, very noticeable elements of far former cultures, and so. He kind of implies that there's a mix of cultures that wound up getting you Dante's Inferno and that there's a element of pre-Christian Roman. There's even strains of the old Etruscan culture. There's elements of post-Christian Roman. There's elements of you know more Germanic influence on Italy. And it all kind of comes together to the culture of that time and that many of the uh, throughout, like predominantly his point is that most of the great cultures, especially at, in his time in 1930s, from what he could tell, um, had significant traces of post-Roman collapse. That not only did they have elements of far-reaching sort of Indo-European cultural traits that were um, somewhat documented, and you could kind of create a, a, an analysis that couldn't maybe lead you to that conclusion, but there was undeniable proof of sort of in most of Europe of post-Roman Germanic influence on nearly every cult, modern culture. And he makes this point when he's talking about French in a hilarious paragraph where he says, whoever looks at modern France democratized, misgoverned by crafty lawyers, plundered by Jewish bankers, spiritually glittering, but living now only on its past, could scarcely imagine that this land once stood from end to end as the focal area of heroic struggles, and for over half a millennium produced figures of the boldest type who were succeeded generation after generation by men of heroic disposition, who among the culture today actually knows anything about Gothic Toulouse, the ruins of which still attest to a proud race? Who knows of the great ruling families of that city, which were annihilated in bloody wars? Who is familiar with the history of the Counts of Fuchs, whose castle is today only a miserable heap of stones whose villages are desolate? whose lands are occupied only by wretched peasants. The Pope declared one of these bold counts about 1200 has nothing to do with my religion because the faith of each man must be free. This fundamentally Germanic idea, which even today is only partially realized, cost southern France its finest blood and was smothered forever with its extermination in this region. 
As a last vestige of Visigothic spirit, Montauban, France's only Protestant college, is still to be found there. And he'll make this, and he makes this kind of the same point throughout in regards to um, the Baltic states, Austria, Pomerania, Prussia, not especially Germany itself, Italy, Spain, England, that effectively the, the great cultures that they were trying, that he thought needed to be preserved, their historical roots are found after the end of the Roman Empire. Not really, not as much before it, but the end of the Roman Empire is when these cultures really began. And you can trace the heroic cycles back to that point. And his account of of the decline and fall of civilizations, while it's not exactly the same as Spangler's account, uh, has a lot in common. He obviously is going to put more focus on blood than Spangler would. However, they make the same point that the collapse comes inwardly. And he's going to point out that what happens is the ossification where what was once a uh, the correct expression of the warrior nature of the Aryan people becomes ossified into some kind of rigid Asiatic priesthood. Would you like to comment on that, James? I think that's right up your alley. Yes, the uh, and to tie that together uh, with the thoughts on France. France is where he starts chronicling about every 200 years, there's some kind of proto-Protestant upwelling somewhere amongst the Germanic Christian people that is put down by the Catholic Church. Uh, the Baldasians in the 1200s, there's the Cathars in, in southern France. Uh, and we talk about uh, uh, Eckert later, which is his favorite figure. The uh, what uh, What's... Eckert now this is the court this man was probably going to be executed by the Pope uh, he was so brilliant he could not uh, he just stymied the inquisitors I think it was actually before the Spanish Inquisition but he, he was uh, he was being grilled by I think in Cologne and uh, what he said about Christ's message was, he, he has not wished to make us into servants, but to call us friends, for a servant knows not what his master wishes. So the whole idea of the warrior ethos is that uh, you, uh, you don't want to be driving slave armies. You want to be out there with brothers. Uh, that is the idea. And the rule of experts uh, is probably our greatest plague now, the following of science as a religion instead of using science as a method. I got an article from somebody today about they discovered finally why the rotational uppercut knocks people out. And it's just going to be used to try to squash boxing. There's no such thing as a rotational uppercut. Okay, so this is uh, an uppercut lifts, a hook rotates. So in the beginning of the study, they mistake the shovel hook for an uppercut, and they construct this whole study on a false premise. And this is where the rule of experts get you. These scientists that never threw a punch are, 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 are coming up with something that's utterly nonsense. But when this does happen, it causes little revolts. Uh, the earliest schism, that there were schisms all through the Christian church from the very beginning. And uh, the Council in the Sea in 372 is uh, a way to try to fix that because there's warring between these different Christian factions from the beginning. 
the Germanic interpretation uh, under uh, a man named Arian, uh, two R's and an I, not a single R and a Y, became called, it, it came to be called Arianism, which was the idea that Jesus Christ was born a man and then he became one with God and he ascended, uh, which fell out of favor. Uh, eventually, Arianism dies with uh, the queens and the princesses who uh, go along with the teachings of the specialized priesthood, which are very often going to be homosexual men that um, from a foreign church organization that the warrior, uh, prince or king, is not threatened by these guys. He doesn't mind having these sissies around his daughters and his wives because he's not afraid they're going to have sex with them. And they're not even men by his definition. But uh, the, the greatest distillation of this idea of uh, the priesthood uh, as this rule of a call of experts is with the Jesuits. And they refined it to the point where they colonized many warrior societies in the Western Hemisphere by getting access to the women through their harmless status. They were not considered warriors. They were, they were considered harmless by the chiefs and the kings. And then the priests get in there and they turn the women against their men. And this is, the media does this now. You can be at work as a carpenter and you come home and all of a sudden your wife might be upset with you because of something she saw on the news that contradicts something about you. The, the media priesthood has funneled down there. So that priesthood he's talking about with, the, he calls it the Roman church mostly, that just continues to metamorphose into uh, different types of experts and now it's the uh now it's uh the follow the science and uh and the media fact check has now taken over where uh in the middle ages it was the roman church doing this gaslighting as ignatius quotes himself if it appears white but the church says it's black it is then black You provided a quote that I also really liked, which is, in the last analysis, honor and freedom are not external qualities, but spiritual essences, independent of time and space, forming the fortress from which the real will and reason undertake their sorties into the world. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my favorites from his book. That's, uh, um, that's the stoic in a civilized setting, that's the stoic, but compared to civilized people, uh, all the air, all the men in the area war bands would have been stoics. You know, they're internally disciplined people and, you know, their, their soul was their fortress, you know, their fief is their body. And then they, uh, then they interact with the world in a way that a sortie is when a garrison that's besieged, uh, by another military, by a larger military force, a sortie is a small group of like special forces guys going out there for one specific mi mission and trying to take pressure off of the besieged location. So it was just an excellent uh, metaphor for him to use, the sortie. He has a lot of interesting passages. I mean, much of the book as well is on the subject of heroism. Um, in fact, I would say that it is probably one of the primary themes of the entire work is the heroic cycle 
as he kind of terms it. And he has a lot to say about um, Marcus Aurelius, and uh, he has a lot to say about Roman Stoicism. And um, he, uh, you know, to your point about with some of these more heroic, you know, they would be Stoicists in their own way. He, he also kind of frames heroism as being multifaceted. And he says, on the other hand, heroism is basic to the character of the Nordic people. This heroism of the ancient mythic period, and this is what is decisive, has never been lost despite reverses of fortune. So long as the blood was still alive, heroism, in fact, took many forms from the warrior nobility of Siegfried or Hercules to the intellectual nobility of Copernicus and Leonardo to the religious nobility of Eckhart and Lagarde or the political nobility of Frederick the Great and Bismarck and its substance has remained the same. The universal character which has been postulated as existing in antiquity is a fallacious modern abstraction. Even after the conclusion of the age of natural instinct, the reason and the will are not divorced from the living blood unless they are strangled in the spiritual jungle of the Near East. Things are not as the new body-soul doctrine seeks to represent, namely that only the earthbound man of instinct is close to nature, more of an integrated being and more vital while what is spiritual belongs to another sphere. Again, it is not sure that the Chthonic idea, which stimulated by the intoxicated poetic imaginings of Bakufen inspires this new doctrine, testifies to a greater profundity of life and certainty of existence. And so you kind of see the, the, the realization on his part that many of these humanistic or universalist or introspective ideal, more introspective ideologies like stoicism, which, um, I think leaves many wanting in the end. Uh, it's a good starting point, but nothing to finish with. You know, it's it's regarded by him as well, all of this is how you get lost in this Near Eastern ideological jungle where you don't really ever become anything and you don't ever really uh, learn to see how you fit in with the whole and where you stand out. And how you stand out, the cycle of standing out, of being a hero. And being a hero means all kinds of different things. And being heroic means all kinds of different things. Stoicism is too defeatist for him because what yes. stoicism is, is that's endgame. The whole civilization has become corrupt. And all you're trying to do is keep your mind and your thoughts from being polluted so that you could send something down through the ages. And hopefully there will be a rebirth in the future uh, where somebody might discover your uh, might discover this. So, uh, yeah, there's there's uh, there's a lot of heroism lacking in stoicism. It's this reactionary urban thing. It's a way to try to salvage some of the spirit that had been lost. But that discipline, that stoic discipline, discipline is basically what uh, all of your uh, most strident warrior cultures, even the non-Aryans, for instance, like the Japanese, the samurai, are going to have a high level of that. And, and, and the same thing with a lot of the Native American warrior cultures. There's a high level of stoicism there. The, the idea that, you know, that it's really you against the world and you have to do something heroic. But once the once the ability to do anything heroic is taken out, then you end up like Epictetus. You know, you're a slave. 
that's educating some of the dissident members of the ruling class. As, that's a that's yeah. a big part of I would say just really quickly that's a big part of um, mid twentieth century as well is in many ways it is uh, it it deals with the subject of of slavery and not always outright but mental slavery you know religious slavery uh, cultural slavery literally being a slave as a result of losing wars or, or just being outsmarted. Um, and you can see Rosenberg's appreciation for the Protestant uprisings many a time in Europe. And he sees this as some kind of ultimate um, rejection of, you know, the Roman uh slavery, as he would think of it, that existed after the fall of the Roman Empire. There was this secretive way in which Rome was exerting some kind of intellectual slavery over everyone. And that, uh, you know, he, he is in many ways, he's actually, he shows a lot of deference towards like the message of Christ, for example. Jesus Christ is, uh, I think, admi- very much admired by Rosenberg. Yeah. And he he makes it very clear that what Rome was doing, uh, especially after its collapse, was some kind of ideological warfare against— It would be like the United States physically yeah. losing its empire and its military bases and just using its media yes. to poison the yeah. rest of the world. Yeah, and, and he would—I mean, yeah. slavery, as you're describing it, and as he would, I think, describe it— if put simply, it would be that it's man, in this case, Aryan man, being denied the ability to live according to his inner nature. It's, it's, yeah, it's and there's, freedom, there's terms good, or internalized. Fr- freedom of action, a field in which yes. you can act creatively. Yeah. And I think that what he sees, too, is this cycle of uh, what he kind of thinks of as degeneration. And that has also many meanings, um, but primarily it is almost a mythic, a, a, a degeneration of the myth and of the soul at its core. And there are both physical and metaphysical paths by which that happens. But it's ultimately a degeneration of the soul that is eventually broken by some kind of rebirth of the heroic cycle. And that it is inevitable that over time you can only sort of um, uh, digest and uh, process someone to a slimmer and slimmer form into a more into a less realized form until eventually there there is a moment of some kind of uh, counterbalance and that it's it's some kind of law of nature that you cannot do this forever. And um, he makes this point, uh, uh, today it is necessary to break the hypnotic spell and not deepen the sleep of our generation or to preach the irreversibility of fate, but to assert those values of the blood which was understood can give a new direction for the, to the younger generation and make possible a renaissance of culture from a clear understanding of the nature of the past struggles of the organically determined into your Indo-European peoples against alien forces, and after comprehending the development of our own natural life and our characteristic attitudes to the universe, 
we feel and understand the longing of our generation to reject the transitory present day and recognize an eternal now. Thus, we can bring reason and will into harmony with our Germanic current of soul and spirit, indeed, if possible, with that true Nord tradition handed down to us from Hellas and ancient Rome. Philosophically, this means to give the aberrant modern will a noble motivation in accordance with its primal nature. Yes. And this, yeah. <clears throat> fitting in with what you were saying about Stoicism, I would like to comment on that. Mm -hmm. uh, Stoicism, as a as a habit of mind, as a, as a discipline, is perfectly natural to us. Mm -hmm. But as an ethos, it's lacking one thing in particular, and namely it is, la it is mythless. Yeah, it's just a holding pattern. <laughs> you know, that, that's it's really what it is. It's uh, just trying, uh, just trying not to get exterminated by uh, by the ruler while you're in a holding while you're in a holding pattern. So you know, he's he's correct to see it as a dead end, but the the, the heroic quality depends on that internal stoicism. Yeah, and we can we can discuss the concept of myth here too. Because myth, as he's using it, is largely in actually the Sorellian uh, sense. And the quote that you had just read, Hans, is describing exactly that. He's, he's looking for a way to move men to action. You know, rather than the, the myth of the general strike, we're talking about the myth of the blood. He points out that he does use India as really the case study for how you lose it. Uh, so he was, uh, the, the miscegenation question uh, is what he explores metaphysically the most uh, when, with his look at India. And uh, the uh, passivity uh, uh, built into that system after a couple of thousand years of occupation. Right, well, because if the blood remains, the, the values inherent in the blood there's always a chance that they can return. But if the blood is no longer there, it is over. And they knew it. You know, the Brahmin class did as much as they could uh, to preserve their bloodline uh, and to see a people that they were in. But they also, as he points out, uh, that the fact that the Brahmins were at the top was already a corruption that the priesthood class usurped the kshatriyas, usurped the warrior caste after uh, the Aryans invaded and conquered northern India. And he charged that as the beginning of this degeneration. So nothing the Brahmins could do to try to preserve their bloodline was going to end up working anyhow because they had already, uh, they'd already polluted the natural order of things where the actionist class should be at, at the lead. It should not be the priesthood as the highest caste. Well, he also makes a point, too, on the, on the subject of India, that from his perspective, India and Buddhism as well, in his mind, uh, even in 19, the 1920s and 30s, had been wildly misinterpreted um, uh, nearly you know, to the point of uh, being disingenuous by the scholars of the day on what these places really were. He said, today, Hinduism... And Buddhism are preached to the point of superfluity, 
the majority of us possess no other idea of India than as it is presented to us by theosophists and anthroposophists. We speak of India as having a soft-hearted philosophy of life merging with the universe with human love as at its highest teaching. Undoubtedly, the late philosophy flowing into infinity, the Vedanta Atman Brahman doctrine, Buddhism striving for redemption from the sufferings of this world, along with thousands of proverbs scattered throughout the whole of Indian literature, justify this interpretation. Nothing exists which cannot be accomplished by gentleness. Happy are those who withdraw into the forest after they have fulfilled the hope of the needy, have shown love for their enemies, and so on. And yet, into these love and sympathy-filled products of the late Indian period, quite different older views intrude which do not recognize personal feelings of happiness and absence of sorrow is the only goal worth striving for, but see the latter in the fulfillment of duty and the assertion of honor. In one of the oldest Indian poems, duty is even praised as a sixth inner sense. In the Mahabratam, the entire struggle revolves around this idea. So he, has, he basically envisions India as a place so wildly corrupted from what it originally was that um, you have to, in order to uh, to prevent people from seeing what a what a civilizational disaster India truly is at its core. Um, I believe there was audio recently that uh, from Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, uh, where Kissinger referred to the Indians as a scavenging people. Um, uh, you know, you get this impression that from Rosenberg that there's a great lie being per perpetuated about the nature of India and the nature of Hinduism in order to prevent people from seeing what true civilizational collapse looks like and what the real history of India is and that the real history of India is far wilder than you could ever really, uh, really imagine. And the India of today is some kind of uh, disgusting husk of what it used to be. They're exporting their upper class as wage slaves. You know, I mean, that's... Uh... I, I saw I saw a report on that 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 showed that fifty percent of like their top intellectuals have left India, and I've known quite a few Indians in the sort of tech world and areas where they're typically the Brahmin types, and they they have very mixed feelings about where they come from. Um, you know, on one hand, of course, they're uh, somewhat patriotic. I mean, they, they care for the prosperity for their, of their people, but at the same time, they're part of them seems to be very embarrassed by how poorly the place is run. What do you think of Rosenberg's, uh, interpretation of this like philosophical concept of love, James, the, the religion of love as he, as he thinks of it? Well, it's, uh, what I got from it is that, in in his opinion, it couldn't be anything other than corrosive in the end because it's so open to manipulation. When you have something that is essentially weak and uh, 
an unfriendly situation, to have that as your core value is going to just open you to manipulation. That's why the heroic is so important uh, in his assessment of things. That's really where it is. And his, uh, he was astute enough to see the link between the epics of ancient Hellas and uh, the German epics a couple of thousand years later. Their, their hero cycles. And anybody that's read the Argonautica and the Odyssey can easily compare it to Beowulf and, uh, and see a lot of similarities to it. So th these people were coming out of the, the same route. Uh, you know, the Germans uh, did not get stuck down into, didn't, they didn't get stuffed down into a peninsula. So I think the, uh, uh, I think he's suspicious, uh, to put it kindly, of having peace and love as your, uh, as your core value. But nowhere in this book does he preach war. Uh, he uh, says repeatedly that every race should have their own homeland. He even calls for a, makes a call for a greater Israel in the Middle East, you know? <laughs> so, um, I think that he's, uh, the, the peace and love aspect, which was so, part of his distaste for the adoption of the decadent Indian religions, uh, amongst the decadent materialistic West. Uh, I think it's just uh, the, the peace and love being the centerpiece of your theology is just going to ensure that it's going to be corrupted. I, I, I'm just a asking questions here, but isn't there inherently opportunity for corruption in any ideology, even in a warrior culture where yeah. brute strength is used? I mean, you could you can unfairly fight someone. I mean, there, there's many uh, examples of this throughout literature and history where there are people squaring up and somebody throws sand in their eyes or they pull out a knife, you know, from their, uh, their pocket or something. I mean, there, there's many dishonorable behaviors in almost any culture. So I don't know. I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate here. I, I certainly well, view, you know, the lo peace the and love is sort of a weak one, but you can see, you can have bad things. To, yeah. A good way to look at it for, for us would be the effect of women voting. Okay, so once everything is about peace and love, and then that goes to immediately materially, that expresses itself as maximum safety for most people most of the time. And as soon as you get to that point, uh, you get there very quickly when peace and love is your core value, then the manipulators just start running everything, and they're, they're going to ensure that everything is going to be corrupted. And as you said, every system is going to, uh, it's going to get corrupted. Every system is going to get corrupted as it goes down through time. And then that's why, you know, it eventually be rescued from cyclicity, but it's what's the more morally durable core is really the idea. That's why he contrasts honor and love in two different chapters in two different books of the book. So it's not, and, and we, we shouldn't take honor and just say that it means strength. Okay. So, Honor is going to be uh, the person that owns his deed. Well, we live in a society now where you can't own your deed. You can't even own your name if you said the wrong thing. You've got to go by a different name or something like that. So this is, we're beyond the end game. We're like maybe at the bottom of a reboot or something. 
the uh, he doesn't even seem to have been capable of imagining things could get worse than they were uh, when when he was writing, but they could uh, according to his to the same scheme that he laid out there. So the idea of honor was that the person that is strong is going to have to act openly within his in group and is going to own his deeds. Mm-hmm. And he's going to speak the truth. So it really goes back to the very ancient Aryan values of the Persians, which is uh, that, you know, they had three things to, to ride well, to shoot straight and to speak the truth. That was it. That, that was your qualification for being a Persian king. So uh, this is really what he's trying to get at. What's uh, uh, what's least likely to corrode? Is it going to be the peace and love? Uh or is it going to be the, uh, or is it going to be the honor? And we will, in a peace and love society, we are taught to equate honor with just might makes right. And there are even some crude attempts to do that, like the book that uh, that people think that maybe Jack London wrote 120 years ago, might makes right. Yeah, there are even crude attempts to sell it that way and say, yeah, you know, just the strongest guy should rule. Uh, but that is the peace and love in. That, that is uh, people of the priesthood of peace and love looking in honor and deciding how they can denigrate it by equating it just with brute strength. Hmm. Yeah, and there's several appeals throughout the book to rationality. And there's also at the same time, he will then critique this sort of cult of the rationality of the rationale that, you know, Rosenberg is in many ways a sort of a mo- like a, a centrist or a moderate, I suppose. He he, from from a political point of view, uh, he doesn't really necessarily believe in in some kind of uh, stark single ideology. That there are eternal principles that you should follow that should guide a, a new ideology that you create and that you know, ideology and, and political leaning and all this is just sort of ephemeral and to get wrapped up into it is, is pointless and just leads to a waste of, of eternity. And that there's, there's far more perpetual truths that you should be in principles uh, that you should be you know, forced to associate yourself with. And that you should ultimately be much more of a of an independent-minded person. You should also, at the same time, understand yourself as part of a collective. And so he kind of oscillates back and forth, and the kind of the approximated idea of the ideal Rosenberg system would be one in which um, honor is the primary trait of it. Um, but it has not necessarily any real name, and it has not necessarily any fixed ideology. It really is only there to ensure that there is honor and dignity and um, collective sacrifice and, I guess, heroicism amongst uh, a group of, uh, of like-minded people and racially similar people. That would be the sort of the crux of it. And, and you can you can kind of see the you know the approximation of Rosenberg's ideal in modern Japan, modern Korea, 
many countries around the world actually exhibit this principle, and they're not necessarily thought of as extremist or radical. They're simply practicing um, what we would consider stability. And I think that much of Rosenberg's book is really about how exactly do we go through these cycles of stability and heroic struggle and then downfall and then back and forth, back and forth. That is really, I think, the the crux of it all. I mean, there's this part where he talks about a typical example of how the Roman system utilized human weaknesses for its purpose is shown by the compulsory dogma of the selling of its indulgences. The church asserts that it possesses a fullness of representative atonement towards the poor sinner on behalf of Jesus and the saints for releasing and binding by virtue of their divine trust. It has the approval of Jesus at its disposal in dealing with a particular evildoer. And he kind of goes on to later say about this, uh, uh, the doctrinal principle of absolution was not only possible because during its formation, the idea of a feeling of personal honor had not taken effect. It had to extend its way further to undermine the still existing consciousness of honor and to give the stamp of piety to slavish thinking. The German rebellion against this disgrace compelled the Roman system to a, be more cautious in organizing the system of indulgences. Fundamentally, however, it is still defended today as a just and pious practice of the church. So you can kind of un- get this... Uh, impression from his mind that above all honor is at the core of anything and as long as you're honorable corruption is possible but extremely difficult and unlikely um so that's the kind of answer your 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 question on the subject of love there was a quote that i was looking for for a little while now and i finally found it and i don't know how much of this uh, suffers from translation or not but it's important to keep in mind that it's he's as James said he's nowhere calling for war and he's certainly not calling for cruelty which is sort of the cartoon caricature that our enemies would paint of us none of us would would be in favor of cruelty or of any kind I mean my position generally is that uh, we should put an end to unnecessary suffering now here is an appropriate uh, here's the appropriate quote, and what he's going to be getting at is that it's it's not about it's not that the action would be different, as in, for example, helping someone. It's what is the motivation for that action? Does it come from an inward honesty and duty to conscience, or does it come from submission to some kind of alien creed? And if you can get people to behave in a way towards towards the decrepit and the ugly. Well, you're getting them to move far away from themselves. So here he says, A Nordic people determined by the concept of honor would assert that someone in need should be supported not in the name of condescending love and mercy, but in the name of justice and duty. This would have had as a consequence not a subservient humility, but an inward honesty. Not the breaking of personality, but its strengthening. That is, their reawakening of the consciousness of honor. So honor and honesty, it, it, it might be a lot easier for the current human being that speaks English to just use the term honest instead of honor, because there's been such an attack on honor for the past couple hundred years. 
as something that's uh, uh, that's just might make right. Okay, and justifications of that. So uh, uh, I'm glad he used both of those words in the same sentence. Well, James, you have a pardon here on this subject as well. You say in your notes, um, then finally he writes that Germany forfeited its unconditional nature, became poisoned by bureaucratic dynasticism, industrial politics, stock exchange, profit economy, typified thanks to the human humanitarian stupidity in the idealist townsmen of the 19th century and finally collapsed on November 9th, 1918, when its supporters and representatives ran away before a few hordes of deserters and jailbirds. And then he writes, that closing paragraph of love and honor not illustrative of the American condition. Um, I mean, can you expand on that? Because I think that's actually pretty pretty insightful, what, what tying country, that to, to the United States. What this country went through in 2020, uh, what, 34 cities, I think, uh, burning with... Uh, jailbirds and uh and other reprobates out there uh doing what they want and uh nobody's standing up because you just have this scaled up system that has become too profitable for uh uh for people to want to uh use it for good it's just to be used for profit so you're at the same point and what what he's talking about there i think uh Ernst Junger was like one of two guys, one of a group of three guys that actually fought uh, during that episode he's describing. Uh, the uh, 2020 is a complete moral collapse of a nation in the United States. You know, most people have decided not to be with their families, not to even see their family members again. So it's uh, I just thought I just thought that it was perfect. Just a the energy uh, the harebrained energy of a few criminals uh, means more than the morality of an, a nation of tens of millions. Uh, th that just struck me uh, when I was doing that. That I was writing that. Uh, it was like the week between Christmas and New Year's, I think, was when I was writing. <laughs> so, um, you know what was going on then. And uh, I just thought it was perfect. It was almost as if he had uh, a crystal ball, but it just goes to the point of his, his way of looking at things. If, uh, if you make weakness your virtue, you know, then your, your, uh, uh, your decency is going to be corroded more quickly than if you make honesty your virtue. And yeah, I think the the decency and the the egalitarianism, you know, he frames it as um, as leading to chaos eventually, as a weapon that will inflict chaos, and that becomes very apparent when the subject of Freemasonry is brought up. Um, he said the new do this new doctrine of humanitarianism was the religion of the Freemasons. The latter has provided up to the present the spiritual foundations of an abstract universalistic culture, the starting point of all self-seeking sermons promising bliss. It also gave around 1740 the stamp to the political slogans of the last 150 years, liberty, equality, and fraternity, and gave birth to chaotic, racially decomposing, humane democracy. At the beginning of the 18th century, men gathered in an assembly in London whose conflict with the former religion of love had led in many cases to their exile from people and fatherland. Uh, 
and who in the midst of a dissolute time founded a league of mankind for the promotion of humanity and brotherhood. Since this league recognized only mankind, no racial or religious difference was made from the start. Masonry is a humanitarian league for the spreading of tolerant and humane principles and the striving for which the Jew and Turk can have as great a share as a Christian. So Ryan, the Constitution set up in 1722, the idea of humanitarianism was to form the principle, the purpose, and the substance of Freemasonry. It is, according to the Freiburg ritual, more far-reaching than all churches, states, and schools, than all classes, peoples, and nationalities, for it extends over the whole of mankind. And so this is sort of like Rosenberg's warning that if you don't stamp out these uh, these cults of and these religions of love and these practitioners of, of witchcraft and all these sorts of people, they will stick around. They will find ways to kind of hide in the shadow and coagulate over time. And this eventually leads to the absolute unending chaos of the late 18th century and certainly much of the 19th century across Europe. Uh, it, you know, it can really be tied back to these formative years when uh, a lot of the, the great losers of the struggles in Europe began to come together and formulate some kind of plan um, for revenge is how he sort of frames it. And that it's another, you know, another return to the heroic cycle where, you know, once again, um, the Nordic people of Europe are thrown into this uh, sort of hidden war with an enemy that seeks to use um, love and humanity as its weapon, not necessarily um, traditional or even more subtle warfare. It's, it's you know, f it's completely revolving around dishonor and causing chaos yes and in this state of racial chaos in the purely materialistic world of the humanitarian freemasonic democratic system there is only one group of people that thrives in this and that is the jew yeah and this uh the danger of scale now his his essential call was not to remove any religions but to have each people have their own nation and to have essentially a state religion uh, that would be an umbrella that would protect the other religions under them because he knows that you already have an international religion of just gross material gain that's already scaled up. So uh, just a folk religion somewhere in some nation that is underneath this international global system, uh, it doesn't really have a chance. So what I believe he was proposing as a state religion was uh, not to replace the other religions, uh, but to serve as a protective umbrella against the, you know, the all-devouring globalism that was already, uh, already well underway with what was going on with the British Empire. And he cites 1740 or 42 when Frederick the Great ends up fighting uh, most of the major powers in Europe. And he was a, a brilliant Prussian commander. What he, uh, what saved him was actually the cult of honor. The czar, the young czar of Russia, 
admired him so much that he withdrew his troops because Frederick the Great was going to go down to defeat. And he was going to go down fighting. And, you know, the, the young man that was running Russia, you know, he couldn't kill his own hero. You know, so uh, that kind of saved that. So there's as long as you have that honor cult somewhere, uh, particularly in leadership positions, it could uh, pr- prevent a whole lot of real nasty stuff. So uh, modernity is basically the idea of uh, completely eliminating the honor cult from the decision-making process and large-scale activities. I do have a question, because you guys probably know about this. I haven't looked into it that much with the Masons. I realized that uh, a decent number of the founding fathers were deists. Okay, so they they have a, a general uh, uh, a general idea of a divine creator, but not, uh, not any type of uh, re- relationship between uh you know extra human beings and humanity humanity has been set on its own by its creator how many of these guys were masons amongst the founding fathers an enumerity of them the majority the vast majority yeah but you i mean there's there's a lot of asterisks to that i mean first of all there was at some point it's not uh, super well documented, but we know that there was a there were at least two or three major splits in Freemasonry around this time, uh, preceding the American Revolution and immediately thereafter. And one of the primary splits uh, appeared to have revolved around uh, a break between the English lodges and the Continental lodges. There were also breaks uh, between the English lodges and the American lodges, although not entirely. But this partially explains why um, the, uh, for example, the cause for independence uh, in America was uh, as a per capita uh, amount of the population was nearly as popular in England as it was in America. Because at one point, at its height, nearly 30% of the English population believed in it, believed in American independence, not like to get rid of them, but as a matter of principle. And around, you know, basically a third to 40% of the American population was in favor of independence and the revolution. And um, part of this is, is explained by the Masonic connections. But there's an element here that often gets overlooked in that in the immediate aftermath of the French Revolution, um, many of the prominent Masons who were involved in the American founding um, turned their back on these uh, absolutely insane and bloodthirsty freaks in the French Masonic Lodges. Thomas Jefferson didn't. Thomas Jefferson did not. Patrick Henry did not. Thomas Paine did not. But two of those men were practically disowned by uh, Arch Mason himself, George Washington, due to the, what he thought, depravity of the whole thing. And this led to another sort of quasi-split within Masonry in the early United States. And... Um, many of those guys were Masons. Many of them were not. 
the average person who believed in the revolution was almost assuredly not a Freemason. There were plenty of reasons why there were revolutionaries in America that and not a lot of it had to do with Freemasonry. I think that you also have to take into account that Freemasonry was the um, um, the edgy, cool thing to do if you were a rich aristocrat. And it just so happened that the majority of the founding fathers were themselves in some way kind of aristocrats, either through wealth or through culture. And um, it sort of correlated with masonry. So there was a Masonic element to the American Revolution, um, for sure. But uh, it's not as clean cut. And many of the Masons who participated in it uh, had wanted absolutely nothing to do with what they saw as going too far, which was the French Revolution. Um, and many of the Masonic revolutions of the 19th century throughout Europe were flat out ignored by the United States um, to the point where there was a hilarious incident in which Freemasons from the Austro-Hungarian Empire came to America um, and were told to fuck off. Like we, have one, we have no interest in helping you out, no interest at all in rebelling against the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Good luck. And of course, those guys lost and they were all put to death. And I think that it you can't necessarily say that uh, all of this is just sort of Masonic. And I think that especially the way in which America unfolded very rapidly, it defied many of the Masonic principles that Rosenberg was talking about. And it seems like Rosenberg is particularly affixed with the continental Freemasons, the French, the Germans. You know, the Freemasons who were causing real problems and who were indirectly or somewhat directly tied to the rise of um, Marxism, which I think what he saw was the ultimate issue at hand was not necessarily Freemasonry. It was what free what the continental Freemasons were feeding into, which was the, the Marxist cult that was growing in Europe in the 19th century. And you also kind of have to see it from his point of view at the time. In 1930s, Germany, 1920s, 1930s, Germany, Marxism is a big deal. Like, <laughs> it is it is a big deal. It's, it's at the point of life or death. Like, the country is tearing itself apart in, you know, a kind of low-grade civil war over this issue. Well, yeah, so no he, longer is the Asiatic horde just on the frontier. It's now in the minds and, and spirits of people. Right. And I think he was he was maybe reaching a little far, but I think he was trying to determine, OK, where exactly did this Marxism come from and what, where how do I trace this back, especially within the context of Germany? Who's really behind this? And he kind of settled on the Freemasons as the oh, likeliest from, culprit. Uh, from Moses to Lenin. Yeah. Uh, I have a question for you, James. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so this is, I found in your review, as well as just talking to you over the years and your other work, uh, this is a question I, I have, I've seen you get at, and I just would like to hear your direct answer to it. Sure. Namely, uh, and you, this is also where you get into the cr criticism of Rosenberg, and namely you think he's basically a delusional dreamer when it comes to the path forward. And namely, 
Do you think that it is that the Aryan man is fundamentally incompatible with a modern industrial state? Is it something like the wolf being thrown into the desert? Well, he's necessary for it because you're not going to build it without him. Uh, the, what I see as the thing that he is not incompatible with, but not compatible with without being corrupted is the financial system that ends up taking over uh, with the industrialization, uh, basically banking. Uh, if you take all the bankers, I'm sure there's plenty of Aryans in there that have been completely corrupted by the whole process. We're born into a corrupt uh, situation and they've thrived in it. So uh, I don't think it's the industrial aspect, uh, it, it, except for the extent that the industrial aspect is going to supercharge the power of finance. You already had the financial aspect, for instance, when Cromwell invited bankers into England after King Charles was beheaded so that these people could start monetizing English and Irish poor people and selling them to the Caribbean, uh, you already had banking then. You already had banking when the Magna Carta was signed. It was a it was a key driver in that. But I think that what happens when you get this, uh, and Rosenberg, although he doesn't say it, I interpreted that, he's constantly warning about the, uh, the, the, the soulless peril of this uh, upward scale. When something is all-inclusive, then it's gonna be so powerful um, that the temptation to wield it for evil was just going to be huge. So I think that what the industrial uh, age does is it takes that already corrupt banking system and it just supercharges it. It gives it uh, it gives it a whole new power source. About his uh, one of my favorite is in this domain of the gutter where he's describing the behavior of the capitalist American savage who he seems to think is redeemable, but is, uh, he depicts him accurately is just some, some rapacious hunter of the dollar who, who then has his sports diversions. And that's it. And I also like an, another quote of his that I like a lot. And he points out as a trap, the flexible sword of reason, which is a great metaphor because a good sword is flexible. Uh, and he points out in his study of the philosophers of the 1800s uh, and the 1900s, how uh, using your uh, flexible sort of reason to try to elevate yourself as a, a problem solving deity is, is a recipe for disaster. That those were two of my favorite metaphors. Yeah, and I, I'm fond also of the idea of the hunter of the dollar because... <laughs> This, this is one of those themes that it's everybody I know, we, but, <laughs> but the word in particular, the hunter, it's that the way that man is best corrupted is by appealing to aspects of his nature that are in fact true. And that's why sports has been such a big diversion, because all sports involve one or both of either aiming or chasing. You know, it's essentially a hunting activity that you could get these uh, people to be hypnotized spectating and thinking that they have actually something to do with the activity because they're watching it. So that's, and watching is a big part of hunting too. 
that might be where that hypnotic quality comes in. You real hunters spend a whole lot of time glassing. They call it using their binoculars and everything and just looking. So uh, yeah, I absolutely think you're right. The, uh, uh, the tragedy of the Aryan, uh, under your, uh, expanded economic systems and one fellow i cannot remember his name please look this up maybe you can find a book i think you guys would like it a babylonian woe self-published in 74 the guy charged the corruption of civilization by money and he ends the book in 200 a.d okay it's already to him it's already a done deal uh it was titled a babylonian woe and the idea was that money divorces morality from buying power. And so, so it's going to be an, an intrinsically uh, corrupting influence. But he has a quote in here from a poem, uh, Curse Struck Us, Brother, uh, which was about these two, uh, two Germanic warriors that uh, they killed each other. So the idea, the, the big danger, which was expressed in World War I, for instance, was the idea that this unparalleled ability to wage war using animals and machines, which these, these are uh, largely Aryan inventions, uh, innovations, particularly the use of the animals, uh, can put them at the mercy of manipulation by unvested forces. And uh, then you end up having, you know, the warriors... Uh, using a misapplying their honor code to murder each other on behalf of somebody who's just making money off of it. And what you call, I'll read the quote that you refer to as the best in the book. The quote from Rosenberg is the dignity of personality has nothing to do with the person. Otherwise the most worldly and materialistic men would believe in a personal immortality with all their power. But the latter desire only an extension of their animality into infinity. That was beautiful. This guy was a good writer. He carried a very good narrative, and he could discuss myth without constantly uh, going into being a folklorist. He, he could he could really discuss our symbolic life as peoples uh, with a flow, which is very unusual. Yeah, and, and my favorite quote of yours in this review is the following. The European Aryan was a man whose race was born under the open skies of the steppes and conquered a primeval forest and cultivated river valleys and thence found itself assailed by the mongoloid hordes of far Asia and the corrosive slave civilizations of near Asia. That cornered dog of war that is the Aryan at his best loses his fangs as soon as he finds no more enemies at his throat and no more worlds to conquer. Oh. I think that's very good, James. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, thanks for uh, reminding me that I wrote that. I had pretty much completely forgotten. <laughs> the, uh, I, I think it's kind of uh, fascinating that, in a way, Rosenberg was looking to the savage hunter of the dollar in the United States as a possible uh, salvation mechanism, a possible pool of Yes, corrupted, but still dynamic enough and still liking freedom enough that, you know, that there was going to be some hope there. But then, uh, you know, fortunately for him, he didn't live to uh, uh, live to see how bad it got. I guess it got. Uh, well, it turns out enough. that they were his executioners. Yeah. Uh, 
And so maybe it would have been nicer for him if, uh, if he could see what they turned into uh, because they just ended up becoming the fruit of the deceiver. They're, they're nothing but the children of the lie. That's our people. However, uh, live on that, lies. <laughs> that being said, I myself, I do see some hope in the American people in their worst qualities. I think that the fact that American people are basically uh, cultureless, violent psychopaths <laughs> actually provides some hope for the future. I agree. Because it means that the strings that that have been you know, used to dangle around more established culture centers are much shorter. Uh, I agree. There's I think a- that the American is by far the most likely of all European peoples, or I guess former European peoples, uh, to turn against their masters. Yeah. Yes, I agree. And there's always hope there. And the worse it gets, the more hope there is there. And there's, you're probably already hit the hard floor as far as how many people can swallow the multitude of lies necessary to imbibe, to continue having faith in, uh, you know, globalism and the world system. So, uh, well, Americans don't like complexity and the more complex (laughs) they make the lie, the more likely you are to lose the attention of the American. There you go. Redneck savior, uh, on the horizon, uh, somewhere. But I, I definitely think that, uh, we've hit the bottom as far as how many people can swallow the lies. So, you know, uh, I think we're, we're somewhere in the bottom curve of the cycle. There's a lot in Rosenberg's book about the nature of truth and that ultimately, the, you know, the, the nobility of the soul in part stems from your ability to know the truth uh, about the world and about yourself. And I think that in the context, especially of modern America, um, to, you know, Americans are slowly sort of reclaiming their sense of nobility or their sense of at least uh, dignity. Um, the, the desire for greater amounts of truth and uh, faster delivery of truth and recognition that potentially everything that is a lie, um, I think is now a commonly, somewhat commonly held belief amongst Americans, the average American. And much more so than Europeans in the modern sense, who I think are far more likely to believe what they're told. Um, You can see this tendency amongst Americans to uh, just outright refuse to accept anything at first. It's an Um, argument for blood memory. Yeah. And and I think I think that, you you know, Nick is right. You know, ironically, the United States is probably has the highest likelihood of producing uh, its own heroic cycle before anyone else really on the world stage. And I think it'll be, you know, nearly biblical. As, you know, Rosenberg kind of lays out, there's been these, throughout the, the deep recesses of history, just these catastrophic and incredible moments of cycling in which a civilization just completely uh, unwraps itself. And uh, there is an explosion of truth that, you know, 
results in some kind of extended time of nobility and grace and and creativity. And it only ever comes about in in times of desperate need and just desperate pressure. He points this out multiple times that, I mean, and, you know, let's just face it, this book is particularly harsh on the Catholic Church. And, and his he kind of presents the counterculture view on the Catholic Church, especially in the, at the time, which would have been very taboo, to basically say the only thing that kept the Catholic Church from becoming completely corrupt and unsalvageable were the um, Germanic lords and peasants of the North who uh, were begrudgingly members of the church for an extended period of time and every so often would have to step in and rescue it. And inevitably this resulted in just the immense outpouring of truth and the outpouring of cycle that led to the Protestant Reformation and his, his eyes directly tied to the Thirty Years' War and then directly tied to the formation of Germany in the 19th century. That sentiment is reflected in Beowulf and the death of Arthur. Yeah. And the Song of Roland. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the United States is, is just primed for that. You know, at some point... Uh, you can tell Rosenberg also holds uh, a great reverence for the common person, the common people who have much more honor generally than the elites do. And the elites are normally uh, corrupted just by nature of being elite and at the vanguard of something. And that the common people can only ever stomach it for so long, and it normally ends one of two ways. Um, the civilization completely implodes, and it's either uh, just it just withers away and dies, and it collapses, or uh, it's conquered by a foreign enemy and completely bred out of existence within a few generations. Or there is some kind of immense pushback from the common people to keep the elites in check. And the only country in the world that exhibits any behavior like that on a mass scale is ironically the United States on a daily basis. There's just mass disobedience uh, increasingly. I, and, uh, I think it's an argument for some type of unconscious uh, racial memory uh, amongst yeah. Americans because of how people were shipped here and almost none of them know it. Almost no Americans realize that it took like, you know, 10 dead orphan boys, okay, <laughs> you know, to get slaughtered, tortured, raped, and sunk in an unmarked grave in the eastern United States to pr produce one, one American that was, that, that was going to be around for the census uh, when this country was formed. So, so maybe there's a subconscious sense of, you know, of, we were screwed. <laughs> That's just deep in here because you see it more with rural people, and those are the populations that ran away. Yeah. So I think it's there. Well, you have a you have an interesting part too in your your summary where you talk about um, uh, Rosenberg's discussions of uh, <laughs> of monism and Kant and. Uh, and Schopenhauer, Kant actually shows up multiple times in the book. 
Um, there are whole passages uh, that are kind of interspersed throughout that seemingly <laughs> it's one of the, it's, it's an interesting writing style where, you know, Rosenberg will be approaching some maxim or some axiom of a point. And then he'll remember something tied to his, one of his kind of counterbalancing arguments to that point that Kant would make. And then he'll inject like a paragraph or two, or he basically just makes fun of Kant for not going far enough or for being too scared to make more logical conclusions. Like, do you get the sense that he, he both admires Kant and he also thought that the man was ultimately too afraid to take things to the natural conclusion? He was, he was the admirable mind that lost his way. Seems to be the way that Rosenberg places Kant. His hero of thought, his, his, uh, his religious hero is really uh, uh, Master Eckert, who was a, a Catholic uh, priest or bishop uh, somewhere in Germany who was persecuted for basically being a 150-year uh, 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 before Luther, being a, a Luther and writing, uh, uh, writing sermons uh, that uh, – were out of line as far as the Catholic Church hierarchy was going. But yeah, so Kant is the first amongst his philosophers uh, that he discusses that they lose their way because they depend on that flexible sort of reason. And they feel like that's going to be able to get anything for them. And it, th that, that seems to be the subtext to Rosenberg's look at the philosophers is how these guys lose their way. And Jason Giorgiani does the same thing in Prometheus and Atlas where he documents how, you know, generation after generation of philosopher, you know, manages to convince himself that, you know, he's essentially the mind of God and he can solve anything. So uh, there, there's, that's another parallel uh, between these two authors. So I wonder if Giorgiani maybe read this. Yeah, there's an interesting passage here. The purpose of a critique of pure reason is to make us conscious of the formal prerequisites of every possible experience and to limit the multitudinous options of man's activities to specific areas exclusively devoted to them. Kant's critique of knowledge signified clearly a conscious awakening in an era which had begun to weary of the religious scholastic the aridity of naturalism or the oppressiveness of the sensual. With due recognition, however, of the great achievement of Kant's critique of reason, it must be added that nothing was determined beyond the formal concerning the inner nature and the manner of employment of rational and spiritual powers. An evaluation of the innermost nature of the various cultures and worldviews was not attempted. This has not this had been supplied sufficiently by the Roman Catholic system, Jewry, and the Islamic fanaticism. In its heart, a, people's, a people of culture permits no one the right to assess its creations as good and bad, true and false. So he's kind of just, it's almost like he just assumes Kant just didn't want to make that, that final leap. Like the man clearly was approximating a, a, a critique of pure reason, but then he didn't want to formulate an actual foundation for something larger off of that. He just sort of left it open-ended. 
And it's like, uh, I think Rosenberg sees it as a fantastic critique. And then, you know, the, the man leaves you wanting more and offers nothing, you know, he's sort of demonstrated, uh, transcendental values, but not necessarily what those are or what to do with them. And it, it just kind of leaves you even more aimless than you started. I think that's kind of, that's the impression I get whenever Rosenberg brings up Kant. It's always sort of offhanded. And it always seems like he's just remembering something about Kant that, like, it pissed him off. It's another and, example of him losing his way. That, that's yeah. really what I got out of that. Yeah. And he does. He, uh, Rosenberg kept his, his threads handy. He didn't let a thread go. He would come back to it. Yeah. So he framed a lot of stuff in his mind and kept it there. Uh, as accessible. Yeah, I mean, at one point he accused Khan of, of uh, quote, become Im- becoming enmeshed in hair-splitting arguments, uh, and that you know he, he in talking about the relate like the differences between Eckhart and Khan that Khan uh, effectively wasted a great deal of time. Uh, just belaboring point back and forth and belaboring an argument instead of ever actually delivering a logical conclusion, which is what he appreciates Eckhart more for. And you kind of get the impression that the whole book, by the way, is very to the point. There is no subtext in myth of the 20th century. It is, it is a very literal and straightforward text. There's no sub. There's no subtlety. There's no hidden themes. It spells everything out, um, and it's it's very different from any other philosophical book you'll ever read. It's not attempting to be uh, something that requires interpretation. It is the interpretation. It's the he, interpretation of he doesn't history. pull punches. Yeah, He's he does conducting an, an examination. Yeah, of the subject. No, and he believes that that's the fundamental starting point, which brings me, I think, to the last thing I'd like to discuss. And that I think that one disagreement I find myself in with a lot of people is that they they seem to think that we can stave off oblivion by creating some superficial myth that appeals to the present day sensibilities of debased and deracinated people. I strongly disagree with this, and Rosenberg did too. He says the following. He says, A people is lost as a people and is dead if in surveying its history and in testing its will to the future it cannot discover unity. No matter what forms the past may have taken in its course when a nation arrives at the point of truly denying the allegorical images would stem from its first awakening then it has denied the roots of its being and of its becoming, and it has condemned itself to unfruitfulness. For history is not a development from nothing to something, nor from something insignificant to something great. It's not even the transformation of essence into something completely different. Rather, the first racial, volkish awakening brought about by heroes, gods, and poets is the ultimate achievement for all times. Point being, if we deny the ancient symbols of our people, if we deny our past, we have no future. And my attitude is that as long as the blood remains, there is in fact hope, but this is not something that's just going to naturally organically happen. It's going to be something that has to be done by us actively in the form of creating 
a myth, a new myth that is the same as the old myth. It is the myth of the blood. The uh, phrase he uses to describe the Aryan man is somebody that has a sense of loneliness and infinity. And is he's the thing he has to be most wary of falling victim to is a sense of false shame. This is how you attack the person that's got that sense of loneliness and infinity and is a creative actionist as you afflict them with a false shame. So that's the starting point is do not accept some, uh, some shame that's been assigned to you for the condition of your birth and um, get on with the business of uh, what you just described, uh, 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 making your people. And when you're making a myth, do not cater that myth to people who have internalized that shame. Those people are useless. Fuck them. Yeah. You know, there was this takes me back to I think it was the earliest myth of the 20th century that I watched. OK, you guys had a map uh, of all the counties in the United States by ethnicity. And I used that map actually in my Plantation America investigation. I was very interested in this pretty widely spread group of people who are found in different runaway zones, mountains predominantly, who describe themselves to the census takers, not as English American, Irish American, German American. They didn't even know. They just described themselves as American. And uh, that's, that's an identity that was created by the generations of lives that these people live. And a lot of those people still have that identity. I'm living with a couple of those people right now. Uh, so I, uh, I think it's still a vast pool of uh, people out there that still have an identity. So there's no reason to try to convince somebody that just wants to, uh, you know, get along with the experts um, to try to have them a part of your identity. I, I don't, uh, I, I don't think the battle for economy of scale has been won by the enemy. So I don't think scale is the way to go. I think uh, as Rosenberg would probably prefer it. And I can almost not believe I'm saying it. Purity is probably the way to go. <laughs> Although I'm a, uh, I'm an infamous miscegenator.